one of the things is in our narrative, uh, Mark, um, our narrative here in the United States is that if we want to seek an identity, we do have a meta narrative in the United States in terms of what the United States is. I mean, everybody would go back to the pilgrims. Even if Jamestown was the original founding of the United States, we right. always go back to the pilgrims and we trace it through to the, you know, the, uh, the founding documents of 1776 with the Declaration of Independence and the Constitution, and then on through to the Civil War where we had this radical new birth of freedom with uh, Lincoln's Gettysburg Address. But this is the foundational element, the story that we all share. And I find it interesting in talking with my, uh, my friends with, uh, that are that are kind of more on the other spectrum on on the Black Lives Matter movement is that they're saying, well, why does that story, mm. you know, why is that story greater than other stories? And I'm like, but that's that's the story that we have cohesion. That is our and what story, you're saying yeah. is that's the majority story. So you're saying now it's like changing our language. It's like saying the majority of people here in the United States speak English, but yeah. because some people don't speak English, we all need to stop speaking English. And speak somebody else's language. Yeah, and I'm like, and that's the and, I, and people. Well, it's not about language. I'm like, it's everything about language. The, the story that you tell yourself is your identity, and right. somebody has to choose to be one identity or the other. We can't just simply be both. If you want to be completely a unified people, you have to have some kind of. In the United States, for a long time, even for all the people who came, the Irish, the Italian, everybody else who was somewhat different, were able to accept this common narrative, this right, common right. story. And now that common story is under attack. And it's the disunion of not just the English language, but it's the story that we, that unites us as a people uh, together. Um, and yeah, and I mean, it's so, it's so ironic and sad, uh, especially when we come to Black Lives Matter and, and, and Black Americans, is that the two people in history that have completely identified with the narrative of the Jews coming out of slavery and the whole Exodus narrative are our pilgrims and blacks in America. Yes. And, and, you know, that strength can, you know, bring them together. In that sense, they're part of that same, and, you know, I, I go back to something you said before about watching shows week by week rather than binging them. One of the things that, that really promoted racial understanding and reconciliation in our country more than anything, and I think you guys may still be too young, actually, is when we all watched Roots together uh, yeah. back in the 70s. Yeah. I think that's, that's before you guys. Uh, I, it's amazing because we were all watching it the same night and we were seeing the terrible things done during slavery, but it was a complete affirmation that these people are Americans. In fact, I think Alex Haley's first title was not Roots, but American was his mm -hmm. first title for that. And we saw you know people that got through this and actually wanted to be part of America. And it was a, it was a bonding experience. Mm -hmm. The complete opposite of the, the other kinds of things we see on media and stuff that promote uh, anger and hatred and whatnot. And, and like, if you watch Watchmen, it's well done, but it's, it's in a sense promoting more racial division. Uh, uh, odd, it's done by that Lindelof guy who did such a great job at Lost. Um, but again, there, there's, I don't know, very strange. <laughs> it's still worth watching. But, yeah, uh, no, I watched it. My, par my parents had to sit down and watch it when we were, uh, oh, you're talking about something else. Oh, well, that, oh no, you did yeah. see yeah, Roots. No, I mean, it was Roots. very good. There was even a sequel that was quite good. Roots, The Next Generation is worth watching. Yes. Yeah, uh, yeah. Even got Marlon Brando playing the, playing the you know, the, the KKK guy or whatever he's supposed to be. Um, yeah. But uh, I didn't have the, I didn't have the experience that you were talking about, which is basically that common cultural, basically almost like a, um, if everybody was watching it, it's like the end of MASH. Everybody watched the end of right, MASH. Right. Everybody came together and had a, had a common experience as Americans. This is what we're going to do. And they had a moment of healing, a moment of, of clarity, a moment of, 
of whatever. They were given a message, and that, that's how media can be really yeah. uh, helpful. Is that when we when we do have that, but it's we are so yeah um, diversified in all of the different things. Everybody's got their own little entertainment things. You know, and by um, the way, we haven't even mentioned yet what I think uh, is one of the greatest examples now of, of Christian art, and that's the Chosen. I don't know if you've seen that. I've it's seen that. I've seen a few episodes. Yeah. Extremely well powerful. Done. My son and I did a workshop on it together, and they tried to mimic that during the quarantine when they showed it night by night on a live stream to try to oh, get wow. millions of people across the world. I was, you were one of them too, watching it together. But we couldn't really talk about it because we were all in our own homes. But, but I, I did. But on the phone, talk to some people about it. But again, there, That's there awesome. is some hope there. Right yeah. here, here is a new uh, narrative that is the biblical narrative but is inviting us into it by using all those backstories and things. And I will tell you right now, to me, the, the greatest challenge, and, and I really hope they do this, is in the second season, and they're just about starting to work on it, is they've done a great job showing the love and mercy of, of Jesus, but can they show his anger and holiness as well? We get mm -hmm. just a little bit of it, but we haven't got too much. But if they can pull that off, if they can help us to understand how God is both holy and loving, you know, wrathful and merciful, that will be the greatest thing that we need right now. Because we've bought into the Marcion heresy, two different gods, Old and New Testament. Uh, but mm -hmm. um, no, that, that, that's just, just, I don't know, it's just beautiful. And, and I've seen it, I think, four times now. Uh, and, and I'm going to start doing my Bible studies using it too, because there's so much to it. Bro. Have you seen it, Mark? No, I haven't, unfortunately. Um, oh, yeah, you, it's online. You can check it out. I mean, it's it's you can stream it. There's like an app. Okay, so. I'll check it out. I was just thinking there. Um, I wonder what you guys think about the notion of um, the center, say, versus the different peripheries and so on, and how um, Pajot talks about reality lays itself out according to a certain ordered pattern. So whenever you're discussing, there are things like the African Americans. I think one of the tragic things I would say the African Americans is that their core identity or their central identity would have been Christian. And as Lou said, they, they lived out the experience, the Exodus kind of experience. And um, a lot of the revolutionaries too, the core identity, uh, well, for a lot of them would have been Christian, even though you would have had deists and stuff like that. Whereas now, I think the critical theorists and deconstructionists, they want to de obviously want to decenter that and then recenter them with a new identity, whether they admit it uh, or not. They might pretend that they want to constantly, like Derrida, I guess, constantly uh, recenter, 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 so you don't have a totalitarian sort of um, meta narrative or whatever. But I think um, from a Christian perspective, that's part of the tragedy. So now instead of um, Martin Luther King or different uh, African American heroes, Frederick Douglass, Booker T. Washington, they're not within a continuity of Christian figures in America, say alongside the 1776 style American figures. Now it's like, is it the 1610 project or something? Is it a new woke um, thing? Oh, that's right, yeah. A new 1619. 1619. So they're offering mm -hmm. this a contrary meta-narrative where the center is blackness or whatever your identity mm -hmm. is as a slave or um, instead of, say, the Christian identity that would unite Americans. And especially... Um, with the, as you were saying so about the, the role of the state, so the village thing. So the role of the government, according to people like Thomas Sowell, seems to be from the 60s that they have destroyed the, already destroyed the nuclear family in large part and uh, married African-American mothers to the state. So then now 
you are losing in a very practical sense you're losing the christian family as a unit and obviously that's part of the more recent agenda of the black lives matter organization but it's now the cards are on the table now whereas it was already happening for such a long time and um i think from an irish perspective to um just reading and talking to different african-american friends so it was tragic that they were were forced to adapt a black identity because obviously their um, roots were cut off from them. So they didn't know whether their ancestors were from Nigeria, Ghana, places like that. So you have to call yourself black or whatever. And um, similarly, so say the Irish Americans going there, it's presented in a way by these woke people that um, to become white was a good thing, but that doesn't seem to have been the case for many people in reality. As you say, like you lose a lot of the community and their um, different ghettos in the north, in Chicago and places like that, seem to have been broken up in a form of social engineering by the state that came from outside. Like the power just came in and told them, "No, your identity is not Catholic or uh, Irish or Italian or whatever. You have to. You sort of have to be white, whatever the hell that's meant to mean." And that is tied to the government. And now um, it seems that they've had an inordinate success in recentering people's identities along these lines that uh, suit the state. I think that it's like a false revolution because it's the states and the, the leading capitalist kind of corporations both obviously approve of a, the agenda of people like Black Lives Matter and it's presented as this revolutionary thing. Whereas the true revolution was people like, um, well, say the 1776 revolutionaries themselves to an extent, obviously they, they weren't perfect. And then Martin Luther King, people like that, who called it a promissory note, they wanted to reform it and make it more inclusive within, say, a central Christian identity, whereas um, the woke people want to overturn it completely. Do you find that's the case? And um, well, you know, we, We've seen this before in the Cultural Revolution of Mao Zedong. He didn't just throw out Christianity and Western culture. He threw out... Confucianism and the ancestors and the real Chinese culture as well to start over ground zero. It's a radical Marxist uh, rewriting of history. And again, what we see here is they started by tearing down statues of Confederate generals and very quickly started tearing down everything, anything mm -hmm. that represents America. And you know they, they you know they didn't do it, but they wanted to take down Mount Rushmore. I think they 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 they're they're, they're in. And, and, you know, this, this is why, and Edmund Burke, the real founding father of conservatism, true conservatism, not the Republicans, but mm. true conservatism, you know, said that the difference between the British um, Revolution, 1688, and the French Revolution is that the British Revolution asked the question, is it legal? They weren't redoing all society. They were trying to get back to the, 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 the true original rights of English, back to Magna Carta, even back before then. Whereas the... Uh, the French revolutionaries asked, is it just? Now that sounds better to our ears, but what they're doing is completely redefining justice and redefining, so America, the American Revolution wasn't a revolution, it was a colonial secession. We were just a bunch of Whigs that were taking the Whig party very seriously and broke away, but we continued to work under the same understanding. Mm -hmm. uh, so we weren't the French Revolution that threw out the past and started all over again. And it's scary that we're trying to do this, throw out the old narrative and replace it with a new narrative. Of course, you know what the real narrative is. We're all consumers. That's the real narrative they want. Mm -hmm. But that's another talk. 
Well, that's why that's why you have all the the whole uh, advertisement industry uh, jumping in and all the businesses jumping in is because it's without boundaries you can have a wider audience of people who will, who will buy. I mean, it all it's, it's it goes down to the bottom bottom dollar. Um, yeah, yeah we're, we're all just materialists. Um, so on that note, then what is the importance of uh well obviously we've spoken to it on the, the negative side we say what the, the dangers of not having it so maybe if, maybe if one add anything what is the importance of common cultural heritage and the canon in a universal sense rather than many canons and this abolition of meta narratives and are there any particular um works that you think show a distinctive christian worldview and why should we celebrate them so i mentioned people like terence malik i think malik is someone that could be celebrated by Christians for that reason because his work is universal, has universal qualities. It's not um, restricted to ideology or anything, as far as I can see. Do you have any? So, um, are you talking about a canon for films? Or like a or for um, Chris, for the arts in general, I guess. Okay. Yeah, I think that the, obviously the canon the canon is something that people have attacked because it is that thing that brings the the, the common story. Um, and that common story, and just going back to what we were talking about before in terms of education, education becomes the primary means by which we uh, keep cohesion in the United States. And it's the why uh, I believe that a lot of people do not want there to be uh, independent fiefdoms of you know, uh, private schools and things like that, because they want to keep this common narrative. Now that we don't have a common media, we have multiple media voices, we need to have some kind of cohesive voice to re to retain an identity, an American identity. And so the new shaping of the curriculum will be a shaping of a new American identity, which hopefully will last into the future. That's why we got the change in a lot of, not just Common Core, but obviously the change in what we're reading. Um, it used to be To Kill a Mockingbird. I don't know if we're gonna be doing that much anymore, but there'll be these new stories that come about, these new canons to help us uh, tell a new story, which will bring cohesion to the United States. But I think that's what the canon does. It brings in what is significant, what is of value, and it, it helps us to interpret every other conversation by. Without those common reference points, without those things that, that bring an illusion to something, like Moby Dick, we have Jaws. You watch Jaws and you go, well, that's just Moby Dick. I mean, without the common understanding that Moby Dick is significant, there's no meaning in, the, in Jaws to a reference to an earlier story. Um, to have those big, um, important books that have lasted the test of time that people have continued to go back to over and over again is important for common language it's in essence just an outgrowth of saying we speak the same language right. without the same language we have no cohesion um, you know, that, so, that was the point of the book uh, cultural literacy when it came out ed hirsch and most people just went to the back and tested their trivial pursuit and didn't read the book but what he was saying is that cultural literacy knowing things like moby dick that that's actually a form of communication, a shorthand, we mm -hmm. speak the same language. And as yes. we lose that, you know, an example is if, if I say to you, I went through a personal gestemony last night, mm -hmm. you know immediately what it means. I was struggling with something I didn't want to do, but I knew I needed to do it. And you even understand that what I was struggling with might not even have been Christian. Even though mm -hmm. I'm talking with reference to Christ, I could have been struggling about something aesthetic that had nothing to do with Christianity, but we, we, we speak a common language. And as we lose that, again, we're, we're talking against each other as we are more and more. And, uh, but there is hope because The Chosen was made by Dallas Jenkin, who is the son of the guy who did 
the Left Behind series, it, yeah. so the Left, which is in some ways the worst of the Christian subculture, <laughs> now producing what I think very hopefully may be a, a, a new way of engaging it. Well, first of all, you've probably noticed that most Christian movies, the, the best ones now, are all biographies now. We've gone back to, we've got to tell the story of a real person. I, I don't know if that's a new thing, but it's, it's everywhere now. Uh, and and because uh, we want to make it real, I guess, and struggle mm -hmm. with it or something. And I think that's good on the whole. Um, uh, that you see, uh, uh, I can only imagine that was pretty powerful. Yes. Uh, yeah. It was very powerful. Like a good actors in it and things like that. Uh, mm -hmm. You know, dealt with uh, with you know real struggle. It's not all happy and whatnot. <laughs> um, but again, there's a difference between you know cheesy happiness and and real hope, like you get in the Lord of the Rings. Mm -hmm. darkness darkness but then sam embodying hope and uh that's what uh um who was um that that, that that's what we're, we're we're missing now is is something that embodies hope so mm -hmm. we've got rage like in the joker a rage that we need but where is the hope mm -hmm. uh and you know remember traditionally uh, well i mean the last hundred years marxism hates the idea of hope because to them hope means you're going to stop building their secular utopia. Yeah, yeah. Hope to them is, uh, what is it, pie in the sky, by and by, and it's all that we, we hate it. It's wish fulfillment Freud would say. But we need to hold on to that sense of hope uh, mm -hmm. that can still be there, in, even in the midst of, I mean, there, in one sense, uh, It's a Wonderful Life is an incredibly dark movie, mm -hmm. but it's full of hope. And, and also Mr. Smith Goes to Washington mm -hmm. uh, is a very dark movie. In a lot of Frank Capra movies, the good guys have actually lost. The only reason they win at the end is because there is a sort of a conversion experience in the bad guy that mm -hmm. allows for some hope. Uh, and that's the same thing that happens in the original Star Wars trilogy. Luke Skywalker has lost, but mm -hmm. somehow in his heroism, he has woken up something in his father yeah. Yeah. enough to allow the good ending. It's exactly the same thing that happens in... Uh, uh, in in uh, Mr. Smith goes to what now? In Mr. Smith and Star Wars, there is a guy who's so bad and corrupt. Whether it's uh, um, James James Taylor or or the evil emperor, they're completely corrupt. But the middle guy, Senator Payne and and Anakin, can still be recovered enough mm -hmm. to allow for hope. Uh, mm -hmm. And that I think is what we're missing, right? So we we have new stuff, but there is some. I think you're right that Christopher Nolan does try to offer us some hope, if, if we can understand what he's saying, uh, mm -hmm. does try to offer us some hope. And certainly Terrence Malick does. He's very mm -hmm. specifically uh, working within a Christian context. Um, but uh, it is odd, I tell you, and then we didn't even talk about the crazy Russian. Uh, uh, um, what's his name? Andre Yeah, Tarkovsky, you know. <laughs> you know what? What, yeah. Why are all the good Christians really boring? You know? But anyway, it's good stuff, but it's slow. Oh my gosh. Even so, watching the videos that you sent me about Tree of Life put me to sleep last night, but I kept waking up. <laughs> so on that note then, um, I think you might be able to speak to this. Well, both of you can speak to this. Do you think uh, these movies, say Malik, even people like Nolan, that, that we can discern a message of hope and Christian themes within should be added to a canon, as it were, and included with a lot? So obviously in this book, you talk about uh, Shakespeare and how the sonnet will have that um, tension, and then you'll have the resolution and hope at the end. So whereas a lot of these materialist or determinist worldviews don't have that. And as Matt was saying about the common core there, so it seems that the American identities 
in as it's going to present itself now through the state is probably going to be a lot darker and a lot more anti-Christian than it was in the past, I would suspect. And uh, I, would that suggest then that Christians need to follow some sort of a Benedict option and opt out and uh, go parallel to the culture, as it were? Um, I think especially with things like classical education, which you might be able to speak to yeah. more of, because I don't see much hope in um, sending kids to government mm -hmm. schools where they're constantly being told these new meta narratives and recentered to the government or the market as it presents itself now and um, then expect them to become moral uh, christian creatures as adults does that make sense no i think so we, we i mean the chosen was made completely out of the hollywood system it's a miracle that they made it and they're continuing to do it uh but that's that's not easy to do but I, i'm just afraid that as again, the, the procreation rate drops more and more and more, and the sort of secular radical liberals don't have any kids, but we have the kids. Sooner or later, their only hope is to steal our kids and educate them themselves. So I think mm -hmm. we're gonna start seeing more and more attacks against homeschooling, classical Christian education, whatnot, as they start realizing that they're gonna start losing because they're just not having any kids. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and and uh, they're, they're actually aborting the people that would vote for them, which is kind of odd. Yeah. <laughs> Strange, you know? Uh, I, think I, think I think it's hopeful. I think it's hopeful. And, you know, there, the, you know the, a new Supreme Court thing was passed recently that would help education vouchers, right? Uh, I don't know if you know how it works, Matt, but, you know, here through our property taxes, we give money for education. Mm -hmm. And when a kid goes to public school, I don't know what it is, 2,000 a kid or whatever, right, right. given, right? The idea of a voucher is if I want to send my son to a private school i'm not all of it let's say two thousand goes then let me have a thousand that i can use towards education mm -hmm. uh, but i'll tell you even though that was a great ruling a lot of the the smarter classical christian schools will probably still not accept the voucher because right. they don't want to make a deal with the devil sooner right. or later they're going to get you and so right. I, I don't know if there's any way around uh, a voucher system that doesn't in the, in the end leave you prey to them i mean mm -hmm. heck a good Christian school like mine, we have to still follow a lot of the secular laws, not because we take government money, but because some of our students have scholarships that come from the government. We have to follow their rules, not quite as much as a completely public school. That's why Hillsdale refuses to even take any government money, even in terms of student loans, which means they've got to come up with their own money. Uh, and, yeah. and luckily, you know, a lot of the conservatives have deep pockets to give to them. But yeah, um, so it, it is it is a difficult choice that people are going to have to make. But aren't, aren't you thinking, Mark, did you say you were thinking of homeschooling or at some point? Yeah, definitely. Um, because I, from my experience in state schools, I've been quite disturbed, really. So obviously, I mentioned that those secular liturg liturgies that play out. And um, now it's especially pronounced, I think, with the transgender issue and once you buy into that how is there there's no going back and that's such a that's completely different anthropology and everything else yeah. completely different worldview that you have to accept and uh, force your children to accept and i think if we're going to take a stand how could you not take a stand that when it comes to your children like that i think uh, my, my take on it is, is that there's always been a god option i believe that's it's one option um because uh, I, I believe we uh, we need to be in but not of in but not of and that for um 
you know, we need to have cohesion as Christians, bring some sense of cohesion, but we also need to have an element of Christianity, which is in flux and is um, allowing for um, these ideas to be uh, taught to children. So it's like a new language. So I sent my kids, I started out with wanting to do classical Christian homeschooling. We, we wanted to do that. Um, but my kids, I felt were uh, needed some more, they need more uh, stimulation in terms of other kids. They're very quiet. They're very withdrawn. So I wanted to beef that up a little bit. But for me, I went to a secular school all my, you know, growing up. And people always would say, older people would say, I don't know how you, you can survive in school. It's so different from where it was when I, and that's always been the case. It's always going to be the case that we're going to find people that are um, uh, way outside the norm or feeling like it's, it's so bad today, so bad like it wasn't bad before. But it's, it, it always is bad. And I think that we need to have our kids be tested and grounded. Now, that doesn't mean all kids are going to survive because, I mean, they could, we could have some that, that lose their faith, but we also need to risk, risk for the possibility that what's going to be produced, what's going to come out of that is going to be better than simply um, more of the same. I'm, I'm, and I'm not saying that it's not that. Like, I, I really value the Amish. I value the Amish and the way they do their life. But to say that the Amish are reaching people in a way um, they reach people in a certain way, but they also aren't probably transforming people directly in terms of touching people. They're, they're distant and people go, well, that's a great example. I like to point to that example and say, that's wonderful. But most people will never become Amish. They're, they're teaching their own kids and they say, it's an example of Christianity. It's out there. We can see it. We can see it working. We can see it operating, but it's not going to transform people uh, where they're at right now. And to have that transformation where we are right now is to have people in schools and not to take our kids out of school, but to keep them in schools, but to teach them alongside all these things and to be active, proactive parents and to teach, teaching our kids. And it can be done. I mean, my kids went to all public schools, but we were very involved with them. And it, 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 it's, it's a difficult thing because I'm a huge supporter of classical Christian schools, but I also don't want us to all to pull out of the public school because then we won't be salt and light. Right. Uh, and so it, it's, it, I mean, basically it's the same thing. You know, I would counsel somebody if, you know, they're at a church and the church is getting more and more liberal. I mean, they're, they're still have their theology, but they're getting more and more liberal. Well, what do you do? Some people need to pull out and go somewhere else. Other people need to stay and be salt and light. And yeah. it really has to depend on you and, you know, what kind of, you know, are you able to hold on and be centered in this? Mm -hmm. If your kids are going to be destroyed by it, you've got to take them out. Yeah, if I don't think there's I don't think there's one answer to Christ and culture. It's yeah, it's, yeah. It, there's, there's multiple ways of approaching it, and I think that for the most part, it works fairly well. Yeah, um, the, yeah. Uh, the Amish is what uh, is what Niebuhr called Christ against culture. Mm -hmm. It's the um, it's the Old Testament model of be ye separate from the unbelievers, mm -hmm. and it's good for some. But it, you know, and it, it, I mean, monks and nuns in some way are practicing. Christ against culture, but it's not, I don't think it's the major, I mean, what's what you said, the, the major Christian model is be in the world, but not of it. So mm -hmm. basically. Yeah, and I like I said, there's a, there's a, there's a group, I don't know, Little Light Studios, I don't know if you guys know them, Little Light Studios are in Tennessee. Um, they've approached me recently, they wanted to come and ask me to come and, and uh, be interviewed by them on their podcast. They do videos where they talk about the dangers of Hollywood, and basically oh. every film that they put out or discuss they basically tell that it's somehow it's somehow about Satanism. It's somehow about like it's trying to steal your soul. Like every movie's produced. Like they did a movie on Wally. -E. I, I showed this to you, Mark. 
Little Light Studios, I show you. So Mark uh, had his friend Thomas, one of our friends, the Holland guy from Holland, the video, which, oh, but when I went to watch Thomas's version of it, Little Light Studios version of Wally came up. Actually, a friend of mine said, you need to watch this one. So I watched it. And it's talking about, I saw Satan fall like lightning and how Wally is Satan coming to the people on the axiom and bringing this chaos to a, and I'm going, what? Like, that's, ter that's terrible interpretation. But yet these people, what their, their whole heart, their whole heart in ministry is to say, come out and be separate. Don't, let's do our own thing. Let's, let's have our own movies. Let's not go to Hollywood. Hollywood has, and I'm like, but there's some good in Hollywood. It's not all bad. Let's be discerning. Let's not, let's not throw the baby out with the bathwater, you know? Um, but for them, it was just like, and I told them I, I, when they approached me and they asked me, because they saw Ex Machina, they were like, will you come on and, and talk to us about this film? I said, have you seen my other movies? Have you seen my other interpretations? Oh, right, yeah. They're like, no, we just saw Ex Machina. Will you watch my other ones first before you make a decision? Yeah. I did, and they, they wrote me back and said, Start with Castaway, that's a good place to start. And Shawshank, said, I want to watch those first. Yeah, they said, well, th we think we'll pass. Because I was, I was pro, I was pro like the, the Shawshank Redemption. You know, yeah. I'm Shawshank Redemption. I think it's a Christian film, even if it wasn't produced by Christians. Um, you know, what's funny about Shawshank is that, you know, it's universally loved by people, but generally speaking, the critics don't like that movie that much. Uh, yeah. You know, it's, it's kind of interesting because obviously it's, it, I, 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 you know, it, it, it's playing on a chord of what we want to see, the people. Uh, and, and, and the critics tend to look down on it. They don't like it now, but in 95, before it was popular, it was, uh, was Oscar nominated. The reception was good when it came out. It's yeah. just because it's become so, I guess you'd say like, you know, like the, the Thomas Kincaid was seen as a sellout. So he became. Oh, right. So in essence, Shawshank Redemption is that side of Hollywood because it's popular and what's popular is not praised. I, I just watched and listened to a thing about uh, uh, Steven Spielberg talking about Jaws. And right. before it did so well, all right. the critic reviews, critical reviews were like, it's astounding, it's revolutionary, yeah, right. it's groundbreaking. But then it became popular. Right. He thought for sure he was going to win the Oscar that year. Cool. And it went to, I forgot what it, what, what it went to. One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest. Oh, okay. rather, rather than Jaws. Everybody said Jaws was the shoe-in when it first came out. But because it made so much money, people love winners, he said. This is what Spielberg says. People love winners, but nobody loves a winner. <laughs> oh, there we go. That's a good point. Yeah. And I think, I think the critics pulled away from something like uh, the, the Tom Hanks one, uh, uh, Forrest Gump, you know, oh, yeah. universally loved by people. Right. Um, and probably critically praised at yeah. first. Yeah. Critics yeah. liked it at first, didn't they? Yeah. And then and all of a sudden, because, because what, what, because critics love to be the edge. Yeah. You know what? I like what's edgy. <laughs> you can't be seen to be, with everybody else, so. Right, I think that the, the, the biggest film that was first overpraised and then overattacked is probably the movie Titanic. I've never mm -hmm. seen a movie that was more overpraised. Now they're, it's still a good movie, and then it's they great. went to the opposite extreme, and like it's trash, and it's still a yeah. good movie. <laughs> yeah, same movie. Uh, so um, back to just your point about being in the world but not of it. Um, so from my perspective, I'd be very like, Christian libertarian, I suspect I would define mm -hmm. it as. Um, is it fair to say that? Okay, I agree. I take your point, but is it fair to say that uh, you could still be salt and light 
through more uh, voluntary associations rather than go sending your kids yeah. to state schools, for example, and then send them to get involved with sports and different things like that. Absolutely, um, yeah. yeah. And um, been, at least in America, you know, as homeschooling grew, they started having sort of consortiums and they would have sports teams, they would have uh, choirs, they would do these things together. They would have, what do they call that, debating teams, uh, forensics, all that sort of stuff. So it has grown and you can be part of, of a group. And, uh, but you know, it's just, as parents, we just need to be involved. We need to have these conversations with our kids. We need to watch movies and discuss them like we're doing now and let them understand. And you know, it's, it's not all bad. Like th th this generation is in some ways a little more critical. Like they don't just buy Darwinism hook, line and sinker anymore. They're starting to realize, no, what, what are you talking about? You don't have any evidence. What, what are you talking about? They're, 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 they're also more pro-life, which doesn't mean they're necessarily against Roe Ro v. Wade, but they are more pro-life. Mm -hmm. If they have kids, they see them as important. Uh, and and uh, yeah, no, you, you're right. I think they're starting to realize that there's a, a disease, a, a conflicted nose, just like you said about uh, people are the problem, but if anybody dies from COVID, we have to go crazy now. Uh, no one's allowed to die from this disease. They can die from anything else, but they can't die from this disease. <laughs> Very strange. It, it, it is, I don't even know what to make of it. It, it is, uh, it is. I don't know what we're going to think about 2020 when we look it's, back. It's the, it's the disease of politics this year. It's yeah, it really politics. is. Because I, I guess, are, are people in Ireland going back to school? Because they said in Europe, people are, kids are going back to school, apparently. Yeah, we're meant to go back uh, next month now, actually. But um, I think part of my concern speaks to what you were saying earlier on, that uh, the language has changed so much and it changes so rapidly and it's all on say the terms of the state or these um, activist groups so now the pro-life thing so we won the argument as nancy says in love thy body uh, by showing that the science was the, was pro-life and right. they're definitely human but then they changed the they fit us to person and then they get to define who's a person or whatever. And then your kids are being bombarded with that. So yeah, you guys are uh, perfectly right to say that we, parents should be actively involved with their kids and everything, but you are up against an awful lot, I find. Mm -hmm. And you'd have to be constantly uh, reading the, the latest literature to keep up with the new terms. The same with the racism thing. So people like a lot of Christians, don't know why the Black Lives Matter people get so annoyed whenever they say that, oh, well, really, though, in Christ, like, all lives do matter. We're not saying that that statement suggests that, uh, well, actually, it, the, the statement Black Lives Matter is meant to imply that for a huge swath of people, uh, Black Lives don't matter. So it's an ideological point from the off, but mm -hmm. they get annoyed whenever you um, offer this more universal vision because they see it as part of the white patriarchal society and so on, that uh, it's just a social construct. And they've defined racism to mean a power plus privilege. And even that is changing again. So now when people think of Christians, even think of racism, they think of, oh yeah, you shouldn't judge someone according to their skin color or their ethnic group or things like that. Whereas the terms have been redefined. And so, yeah. so say a Christian parent is even talking to their child about racism they're having to be cognizant of the new definition of yeah. racism. That would be my main concern because... And I also do think that in terms of education, things are worse in Europe than they are in America in general. And the reason I say that, uh, when my son got to study in Greece for a whole semester, I remember one of the things I said to him is, now, when you go to Greece, your faith is going to be challenged. 
but in a different way than you expect. Your faith is not going to be challenged because people are going to debate with you. Your faith is going to be challenged because it's going to be considered completely irrelevant. So at least mm -hmm. in America, it's still respected or at least acknowledged as a real system that real people believe and we can fight it out. But more and more in Europe, it's just irrelevant. You know, it's, it's a fairy tale and, and that's it. And, and so it's harder to fight that. At least if they're fighting you, you can fight. Uh, the, the, the worst thing in America now in secular schools and colleges is that is they use ridicule. They won't debate Christianity. They will just laugh at you. And that, that will kill you immediately. Treat, you know, treat it as nothing but a joke. So I, I think it's worse in general in Europe because, you know, we've just bought into, we're completely post-Christian. We're, we're still fighting Christianity in the schools. We're not post-Christian. So we got that, to be um, very that certainly speaks to my experience. So even in say Northern Ireland, where there's all this talk about religion, Catholic or Protestant, you are are um, very ideologically possessed from a young age, and it's part of the culture. You're you're so immersed in it. You you wouldn't even think of terms like right and left or anything like that. You um, I would have been all until my adulthood, like well into my adulthood, what would be considered very leftist, and didn't even know. Because like, that's you're so immersed in it that mm -hmm. um, you you don't even talk about left or right. It's just it's the good guys versus the bad guys. You do have that ideological vision. So um, nationalists or Catholics would consider unionists and the Republican Party and all in America to be all oh, the bad guys, unless you actively and they don't teach it in the state schools or even uh, so-called Catholic schools that are maintained by the state. So then you have to actively go out of your way to study history, to um, get to disavow yourself with those notions. So whenever I grew up, I read a book by the American historian Christopher Lash about um, the true and only heaven, progress, the notion of progress and its critics, and how this notion of progress is everywhere. And uh, people take it so much for granted. And I was like, actually, this is what I've experienced my whole life. I always assumed that uh, history does progress in not just a linear direction but an upwards direction yeah. and then you it built, it's built into the language but those people are so backwards or that what is this the 1800s or that's the yeah. way you think you think that yeah. we are better because we're in the 21st century or the 20th century yeah. automatically what is it called uh, uh, chronological snobbery is what Lewis yeah. Lewis, yeah. And, and, and i mean I, I, as far as i can tell as well if you compare america to say the uk and to france over where you are you're not having what we call the Christmas wars in America, where, oh my God, you can't have a nativity in a public space. Yeah. As far as I can tell, that is not a fight in England and France. But it's not, the reason it's not a fight is not because they're more Christian, but because they're less Christian and those symbols have no longer had, they've just become secular, that yeah. nobody fights about it because what's the big deal? So in yeah. one sense, the fact that we're fighting about it may mean that America is more healthy, at least in terms of Christianity, is more healthy. I mean, do you get that sense over there? Does anybody fight about uh, nativity scenes in public spaces? No, I don't think that's, that's exactly right. I think uh, you're right about that. Secularism has become, is so successful that it's everybody's, um, the water that they swim in, really. And uh, Christianity is this weird other, uh, and... Um, People just go through the motions. So even now uh, in Ireland, in, in Southern Ireland anyway, a lot of the population are nominally Catholic, but um, they're very like pro-abortion and everything else. And they don't see, any, they don't have any dissonance whatsoever. They don't know the basic uh, claims, even though they go to 
like state maintained Catholic schools for the most part, although that'll probably start to change because I think the way it's developed in Ireland uh, with the pedophilia and everything else, the church was so guilty that they've been, they've been an easy scapegoat. So the government, even though they were equally or more guilty, uh, the institutions were actively involved in pedophilia and covering up abuse and everything else that they have managed to scapegoat the church. So now the government can just run away with having control of the education. So they have national schools, which are becoming increasingly secular. And um, it, I don't think it bodes well, to be honest. So If you live in Canada, in Quebec, you can choose to go to a Catholic school as a public school, but they're completely secularized. Hmm. <laughs> yeah, the, Catholic and name only. Yeah. yeah. That's exactly right, unfortunately. Just uh, to shift gears then, I was wondering, kind of linked to the, um, the previous point about the schools, but kind of different because it suggests kind of more about the market than the state, I suppose. So when it comes to online services, for example, so Netflix and different services that have, I would suggest, an anti-Christian bias at this stage because everything's pro-LGBTQ and it's, right. it's, again, it's part of the culture that people are swimming in. Um, how do you think Christians should interact with those? Should we put our money to buy those or should, again, like some sort of a Benedict option, should we begin to boycott those and set up alternatives, say, or including, like, include, say, mainstream movies that aren't so precisely ideological. So say some of those ones like Christopher Nolan's and include those in our services, but not maybe um, something more overtly anti-Christian or LGBTQ or something like that. Do you have any thoughts about that? I don't, I don't have any thoughts about it. I, I think that uh, it is a, it's, a, it's a hard question. I, I think that you cannot completely rid yourself uh, or find pure services anywhere. I mean, there's always going to be, if it's not just entertainment, it's everything. So if I'm going to purchase it, we're going to go shop at this business. The, the person behind the counter may not have a hold of position to which I would espouse, but I'm still shopping at his store. And I think that when we start to boycott, boycotts are very difficult in the sense that um, everything's just kind of a tied in with everything else. It's kind of all entangled with political points of view. And um, when, when, when I, when I, um, particular business becomes so tied, extremely tied to a point of view, which is beyond the pale, I guess. I, 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 it's, it's a tough one for me. It's a tough one for me. Because I understand, because I'm like, I, I use YouTube, and I know that YouTube does those things. I'm getting on there, and I'm like, I, I, all of a sudden, they've got this whole thing that they're promoting, and I'm like, I, I don't want to promote that at all. But I get on YouTube, and that's what Google's promoting, and um, so it's, it's, a, it's a difficult one for me. I, I just don't feel... Um, in my place and where I'm at that I feel like uh, I, I should be separate from the world in terms of pulling out from different types of, but I'm not saying that nobody else should be or that that, that should be the only option. Um, that's just where I'm at. Obviously, I'm more engaged with what um, secularists are saying than probably even most Christians because people, you know, I, I use, I allow swear words in my, my videos. I, I look at videos that, that people probably would, you know, most Christians would say, I, I'm not going to watch that because I'm not talking necessarily to Christians, I'm talking to non-Christians. Um, and so um, I feel like it's acceptable for me to engage in that kind of stuff, um, even where some people might feel like, nah, I don't, I don't really wanna watch that, so. It's tough, eh? you know, it's odd, you know, you, you get somebody like Augustine who feels bad because I felt I shed more tears over the death of Dido in the Aeneid 
that I shed over my own sins, right? And he's right, but he didn't stop reading the classics. He was still a, you know, humanist Christian in that sense. Uh, mm -hmm. And, and uh, you know, who was the other one? Jerome, too. You know, I, I was more moved by the beauty of Cicero's language than the beauty mm -hmm. of the Bible or something like that. Mm -hmm. But, but uh, well, first of all, of course, we've got to get away from this idea that, that we, we have to insist that the Bible is the best literature there is in the world. There's other great literature, too, okay? Yeah. Let's not, let's not become Muslims and say, you know, the most pure poetry in the Quran, and that's all there is. I know it's real because I, it warms my heart when I read it, which is exactly what the Mormons say about the Book of Mormon. Uh, it, it's, the Bible is not true because it moves us and it's beautiful. It's true because it's true. It's, it's not true because it's beautiful, but it is beautiful because it's true. Let's put it mm -hmm. the other way around. Um, yeah. and, uh, but you're, you're right. I mean, I, I, it is almost impossible. Now, I guess luckily so far, we haven't had to pull out like the, the original Christians who, to be part of their society, would have to actually, you know, take some incense and put it to the emperor worship. We haven't been made to do that yet. I don't know if there will be a defining moment, you know, where I just can't do this. Okay, I, I just can't sign on to this. Um, and uh, I mean, a place where it is getting difficult would be uh, people going into counseling. You know, as a Christian, you may might have to like sign something that, you know, I will, uh, you know, counsel people that are gay and say that it's okay or whatever. I mean, I, we're, we're getting little things like that. Another example would be uh, if you're a pharmacist and you're expected to give out what they call the day after pill. Uh, you know, there've been a few things like that in our country or the whole thing about making cakes for gay weddings. We've seen little test cases, um, but actually, Again, the Supreme Court recently came out with something that will offer protection uh, to Christian organizations. That's right. That's right. Yeah, yeah. Just came out. You know, on the, on the one hand, they gave us something that, you know, gave gay rights or whatever. But at the, like a week later, they gave us something to protect uh, Christian schools. So it is odd what's coming out of the Supreme Court now and how to read it. Um, so um, what if any great pieces of literature do you think come across as well on film as say through the books? Like, um, I suppose, what do, you, what do you think of movies like Lord of the Rings? How much do they lose in that translation? Or are there any that work particularly well that you're fond of? Well, I mean, Lord of the Rings is just amazing. I mean, there's no better <laughs> than that. Uh, the Hobbit is not as good, but that's because the, the book, The Hobbit, is not epic material okay yeah. it, it failed because it tried to make the hobbit into something that it isn't it, it was right. a noble attempt right. yeah uh, i mean the, the the narnia movies are still good the first one is is very faithful the other uh -huh. ones make changes but part of that is just for aesthetic reasons you know the the uh, like i said prince caspian ha has a super long flashback and the children and caspian are kept separate for half the book you mm -hmm. can't do that in the movie uh voyage of the dawn treader is an incredibly episodic book uh, yeah. which is wonderful when you read it, but it doesn't work. Now, yeah. the irony is that they stop too soon because Silver Chair is a perfect Hollywood movie. It is mm -hmm. a quest narrative with a beginning, a middle, and an end. It should have been so easy to film, but they stopped at that point. But not, easy, but not easy to sell because it's probably the least of the, you know, least of the books known. I mean, once you get past, I think the first three books are the ones that are known the most. The last four, besides Magician's Nephew, I think are probably not yeah. known as well. That's true. I think you're right. And of course, the, the, the horse and his boy seems politically incorrect, so they may never even make the horse and his boy. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Roman is, is the Muslim empire, though it's yeah. actually more than that, but, yeah. but uh, a lot of people think they won't make that uh, or, or change it completely or something like that. Um, 
you know, um, it's, uh, I don't so know. Mark, Mark, your question was uh, about literature in terms of. Yeah, are um, there any, uh, that, any books, for example, that you think tr have uh, been made into really exceptional movies that you think? Well, I think, I mean, I, I mean, the two that I would say is The Shawshank Redemption and uh, No Country for Old Men, which I think were great adaptations of, of different books. Uh, the, the, problem with movie, the problem with adaptations is that, with what David Fencher says, is they're totalitarian, is that when you take an adaptation, you basically have, have to, um, you know, limit what people think, uh, and that's why the book is always better. When you read a book, your imagination is better than any Hollywood production that could possibly be, and you're the director. So you're, you're, you're picturing everything as, you're not quite the director, but basically you're interpreting the script writer. So yes, in essence, you are the director, you're putting it into someone's mind. Uh, so when you see someone else's interpretation, how they put it together, you're always disappointed because it's like, it's not as good as it could have been. Uh, but in terms of like No Country for Old Men, I think that some of the choices that were made in limiting it, the book itself, is uh, by Cormac McCarthy. Um, it's uh, about an assassin, and I think it has deals with some of the themes, but I think that the way that the Coens have heightened uh, Chigurh to a point where he's not just a prophet of death, which is essence what, he, what Cormac McCarthy has, but he's death itself, um, and just really, um, I think, sells the book well. I think when you read the book after you watch the movie, you're like, this is just not a, this is just not a great book. Um, but uh, but I, I really do love the, the the movie and same thing with but again I came to those movies before I read the book so that that's my all also my the problem with actually going back and reading a book after you watched a movie because that totalitarianism rides with you when you go back and you now watch the Lord of the Rings or listen to Chronicles of Narnia if you've seen those you know it really does destroy what was really good about the books if you if you let your imagination be ruled by someone's interpretation of it. Um, so if you weren't introduced and, and led through the word to find these things first, I mean, it's always great after the fact to get an interpretation and then you're more than welcome, like for instance, Lord of the Rings or even uh, Chronicles of Narnia to find a different interpretation. I'd love to see another version of those, book, of those movies. Mm -hmm. But if those were the movies you came to first, you're more than less likely to have another version ever done because that's the one that will always be the case. So um, I don't know. Lord of the Rings movies is, you know, that. Jackson and the crew understood and loved the books. And so even what they changed, generally speaking, was okay, except for Faramir. They didn't quite catch it. But other than that, they, they, they loved and understood the books and just brought it right through. Yeah. So that the Christianity came through because they loved the book. Whether they even realized they were allowing Christianity to sneak through, it didn't make a difference because they loved and understood yeah. the book. And the essence of it comes through in, in a beautiful way. I mean, going back, the best adaptations would be... Um, Grapes of Wrath, if you've ever seen that with Henry Fonda. Uh, I, if I had to choose between the novel and the movie, I'd throw out the novel and keep the movie. Did you, uh, go to, did, you read the, did you read the novel or watch the movie first? Uh, I think I watched them uh, about the same time, probably. Okay. I'm trying to remember. But yeah. they're, both, they're both great. Wuthering yeah. Heights, the one with Laurence Olivier, to me is as great as the novel. It's different. Um, uh, Rebecca by Alfred Hitchcock is, is, is as great as the novel. Zorba the Greek, I think the movie's even better than the novel because it's actually mm -hmm. more universal than the novel, even though I love the novel. Um, uh, you know, so there are some really good ones out there. Uh, the, uh, the, the Night of the Hunter uh, is great, and the novel is great too. You can read them both, and they're both excellent. Um, actually, The Invisible Man with Claude Rains uh, is one of the greatest uh, adaptations of uh, the, the, the um, uh, what do you call it? Um, Maltese Falcon, the Humphrey Bogart version, is a mm -hmm. phenomenal 
uh, visualization. But like I said, when I talk to people and, and I just stop listening, if I ask them, well, tell me one movie that you thought was a good version of a novel. And they can't think of a single one. They just don't understand movies. Or the only thing they can say to you is the BBC version of Brideshead Revisited, which I absolutely adore, but they love it because it's literally like filming page from page in the novel. Uh, and it's like, if that's the only one you can think of, you just don't understand film. That's all. Uh, it's a different, Hitchcock preferred to make movie versions of novels that weren't that good. Uh, right. Well, that's partly because he got mad. Rebecca is absolutely brilliant, but uh, it's because uh, David O. Selznick, you know, forced him to follow the novel exactly, and he didn't like it. Mm -hmm. uh, uh, um, and, and, but, but again, just, just give me something that's not a great, great novel, and I'll make a better movie out of it. Uh, some people think that the best uh, Hemingway movie is To Have and Have Not, because that's probably his least good novel. Um, you know, they'd have with, with Bogart, too, Bogart mm -hmm. and McCall. Um, but you can do it. Like I said, if you understand and just open up, I mean, Gone with the Wind actually is a great uh, uh, version of a movie. So, so is Ben-Hur, the one with uh, Charlton Heston. Uh, yeah. is a great uh, uh, movie yeah. version of a novel. Uh, so you, you can do it. Uh, and some of them, actually, I think that the novel, the movie version of, uh, what was the one with the, the firm? The movie version of The Firm actually, I think, is better than the novel. Because at the end of the novel, he takes all the money and runs away with it. Whereas in the movie, they find a way for him to still be a lawyer mm -hmm. and, and keep it. So it's actually superior, morally superior in some ways to the novel. Even though that guy is Christian that writes those things, uh, he found a way to keep him instead of let's just take the money and run. So it's actually better, I thought, the ending. Mm -hmm. um, so sometimes it can, I don't know, some, sometimes the, the movie can be, better in its own genre. We just have to respect it as a genre that's different than the genre of the novel. They're different things. Mm -hmm. um, East of Eden is a great movie that, 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 that follows the second half of the novel. It throws mm -hmm. out the first half and follows the second half, and it's a brilliant movie. Just like Wuthering Heights with Olivier is the first half of the movie and throughout the second half, the first half of the book, throughout the second half of the book. Um, so it, it could be done. Um, here, here, here's something that you, Lou, you might disagree with me on, but I, I personally believe that the better way to teach literature is actually through movies huh. because you can actually, uh, because basically movies are like short stories. In essence, you, you can teach That's a short cool. story, but you, but we know it so much that we can all, you can, we can see the whole of it before we start talking about it. If you've ever been to a book club or whatever, you got, you, you, you read a few chapters, but you haven't got to the end of it before you're already discussing it. And without getting to the end of it, you truly can't know foreshadowing and all the different elements that are going into it. You really can't know what any point means, like this is the hermeneutic circle, before you get to the end of it. And if you get to a, a particular long book, most people haven't spent the time reading it first before they, they're already discussing it. So, like, I remember reading Moby Dick when I was in high school. We sat down and read Moby Dick. But we read a few chapters into it, and we're already discussing what the picture on the wall means of the of the, the whale jumping over the ship and how it might be foreshadowing it. and we're like we never read the book we don't even we've never seen the movie we don't we don't know what's going to happen in the end we have no idea like uh like when elijah like when elijah the prophet comes and speaks to um oh come on ishmael on the shore of the docks before they get on the ship well ahab elijah all that kind of stuff you know i mean anyway you you just don't see all the well, when I teach Lord of the Rings, I tell my students, you need to watch the movie first. If you haven't read the book, at least what? Because there's going to be spoilers in this. I'm, mm -hmm. I'm just taking for granted you know the whole story because I'm not going to sit here and only talk about what we're reading. 
And I had some idiot in my class when I was teaching Lord, uh, Chronicles of Narnia who kept saying, spoiler alert. And it's like, I'm sorry, okay, they're all going to die in the last battle. And I'm sorry, I'm not going to teach this class. <laughs> this one guy was just annoying everybody. That's just me, everybody in the class. But the... <laughs> and so to, to, to know meaning, and that's the thing, is to know meaning, to talk about the meaning of everything, is to spoil the end. You yeah. cannot talk about meaning apart from the end. And therefore, when I, every time I do my videos, people are like, well, you didn't give me a spoiler. And I'm like, you wanted to know the meaning of the film. <laughs> that's right. I, I can't give you the meaning. I know. It's great. <laughs> I'm sorry. Don't watch the movie first. You know? <laughs> and, and, but you're right. I mean, I think most novels are too long anyway. A lot of movies are too long too. But, but I, I love the, the way that, you know, a, a good movie. I mean, you know, until recently, all Hollywood basically uh, um, followed Aristotle's poetics. The idea of unity, a beginning, a middle, and an end, uh, the use of flashbacks to keep unity, all of that stuff. And, yeah. I, and I, I hate the fact that flashbacks are somehow considered old-fashioned, yeah. which is ridiculous. If it works, it works. Mm -hmm. uh, I, I like uh, a good use. Heck, even Terrence Malick uses voiceover all the time, which is kind of funny. Mm -hmm. um, but the, uh, but you know, again, a good Hollywood movie that takes an entire life and can get the essence of it uh, is, is a powerful experience. And you experience a movie different than you experience a novel. Mm -hmm. A novel, and and it, that's why I think people like you know the sort of binge watching because that's what it's like to read a novel, you know, mm -hmm. one episode after another. But a movie is a different thing. You're right; it's it's like a short story. Uh, mm -hmm. it, it's it's got to have a it, it's got to it's got to turn around some kind of a coming of age or rite of passage or whatever if you're going to make it work. Yeah, it's, it's a rite of passage, and ultimately, uh, uh, what, what was the uh, ah, what's it called? Uh, uh, Avatar. Ultimately, Avatar works not because of all of its incredible special effects, but because it is a rite of passage movie right at its center. Mm -hmm. the, the young brave becoming a man. That's what it is mm -hmm. at the center, right? Mm -hmm. Classic um, tale. And uh, except it's a little bit different because in this movie, you know, John Smith marries Pocahontas and then kills all the white people. So <laughs> are we ever going to get parts two, three, and four? What does that guy do? Does he think he's going to live forever? just make the movie I don't, I don't know how disney but i don't know how disney backed them with so much money for something that hasn't been made yet it's like I mean, wow it's unbelievable just make the movie yeah. you know pixar is able to make a movie a year and almost every one of them is brilliant it's unbelievable yeah. it's probably all things considered pixar is probably the greatest studio in the history of hollywood no yeah. even mgm nobody ever had a string of unbroken hits like that everyone yeah. even the ones that are not great like brave are still good movies you know yeah. Uh, and it's not, and it wasn't just the technology. It was the stories. The stories were yeah, made. because they always at, at the center is the story. They would spend forever making the story, and then they'd yeah. go, and they would change it. I mean, watch the special features of Incredible. How many times they changed the the movie? It's unbelievable. The Incredible is the first one. Uh, it's and interesting they, they that right. um, the the two main guys at Pixar are actually avowed Christians, like Andrew yeah. Stanton and Pete Docter are both. A pretty open about their Christian faith, and there it kind of speaks to what you're saying earlier on about um, it's beautiful because it's true, because there yeah. is those truths. And um, I think for me, anyway, Finding Nemo and movies like that had this wonderful message about fatherhood that kind of um, spoke to some of the issues that were in Matt's video about um, right. a quiet place and the role of fatherhood, and it's so um. It's kind of stealth <laughs> Christianity, I guess. That's right, yeah. <laughs> so, um, just b back to one, something more along your uh, 
classical education now why is it important now in this day and age whenever we live in a technological society that everything is remembered on google say that uh, kids are taught to remember key facts dates you know, that's an interesting point. and you know you probably know that you know that at the corner of, of, of classrooms is this idea of grammar logic yeah. rhetoric yeah. And yeah, you okay. just have to have, I mean, I guess that the best answer to that from a Christian point of view is we all have our uh, cell phones and we can go on the Bible and we can search it and we can find it immediately. Therefore, mm -hmm. let's stop memorizing scripture. I mean, yeah. I guess maybe that the yeah. best answer that we need to have those linchpins in our mind uh -huh. so we can hang everything together. It's just like if you're, you know, British, you have to know 1066, you know, or, or uh, uh, 1588, Spanish Armada. There, there are certain things. We, we know 1776, right? Uh, certain things that are hinge dates that, that, that allow us to keep something in our mind. We can't memorize it all, but we need to get in. First of all, children love to memorize. Mm -hmm. The phase of childhood is a phase when you are interfacing with the world by memorizing even if it's useless facts right and uh and and, and we need to to work on them get it in there uh, you're probably like me the, the the bible verses i memorized when i was 18 i know them better than the bible verse i memorized last week mm -hmm. and so let's use the way the human being works we're a sponge we absorb everything we love it they love to memorize they love repetition that that same joyousness of of of, of reading the Iliad, the Odyssey, the the mm -hmm. love of of uh, repetition. You see it in in uh, in um, in Walt Whitman, and I think what saves Walt Whitman is his childlikeness. Mm -hmm. He is egocentric, but he's egocentric the way a child is, not mm -hmm. the way a narcissistic adult is. And mm -hmm. so he loves to list things on and on and on and on. I always resisted Walt Whitman because I was supposed to as a Christian until I read. Chesterton and Chesterton said, if you haven't read Whitman and you hate him, that's fine. But if you've read him and you still hate him, there's nothing that can be said for you. So <laughs> Chesterton said it was all right to read him. I went and read him. And I, I still disagree with a lot of things, but I mean, there is a, a love of life and a joy that just flows out. That's actually very, very American. So in a weird way, he's actually very patriotic in his own strange way. Uh, and, and we, again, we can see that in in films, you know, we may disagree with it, but if it has a love and a joy for life that's there, I want to be drawn towards it, you know? That's why I love, I'm sorry, but I love the two Mamma Mia movies. You can make fun of them, but there is a joy of life and an innocence. Even the stupid gay subplot doesn't, I don't care because there's a, a, a innocence and a joie de vivre and a joy for life that go out there and act silly that I think we need. I don't want all of our movies to be like that, but we need that counter vision every so often. Uh, and, and uh, you know, like I said, sometimes just crazy silliness is, 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 is nice. We need Mr. Bean, okay? <laughs> we need Mr. Bean every so often. I don't think you're in now. Oh. Sorry, my. Oh, I was just going to go on about the uh, uh, memorization. I don't think you can, I don't think you can think about the things that you haven't memorized. And mm -hmm. so just to be able to go and, and, and pull up something from Google or get a date or whatever like that, if you, if you don't know something in your mind, you can't put it together in any kind of uh, you know, functionary way. So I, I, I was just thinking of the Chinese box, uh, you know, the uh, that John Cyril came up with, basically the refutation against artificial intelligence. Or if you put somebody in a in a, in a room and uh, they can technically go through and and work out Chinese. Someone puts in something in Chinese and they can push out something that's in Chinese, but oh, they right. don't know Chinese themselves. It's like you 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 haven't really 
you don't really know if you're just spitting out what somebody else has said. So to memorize is in essence to, to think about something and to think well and long and hard about something. Um, that, when, I, when I think about uh, studying a book of the Bible and I, I want to give my students or if I teach them something, I want to give them a map so that they can hang all the thoughts in their heads because if they can't hang everything in their head, if you can't think about every moment or every connection, you, you can't truly know the meaning of any part. So to memorize those parts is essential for coming up with the meaning. And therefore we need to have memorization uh, in order to, to, to work out the meaning of things. I guess it ties in with um, identity as well. And obviously that uh, you, it, even as, in a Christian liturgy, obviously do this in remembrance of me, you're repeating that over and again, and you're get, being formed as, uh, in Christ as your main identity. Um, I guess that ties in as well. Mm-hmm. Um, okay, that is most helpful because I think a lot of people will probably just take it for granted that, oh, you should just go to Google to get whatever information you need, and they don't think about how um, it ties in with identity or how, I, I, how you think at all. And, and I think that that would be the key. I think what I just touched on it is that, is that to memorize is to find the meaning, that you can get information and it remains simply information. Like I can find 1066, you know, the Battle of Hastings, you know, but if I don't know, um, you know, where that fits in English right. history and what transpired after and before, I don't know the meaning of 1066 right. at all. It, it, it makes no sense for me today or for anyone else. It has no significance whatsoever. So facts are insignificant, but when you put facts together, they have meaning. And that's why I'm trying to say that memorization brings together a sense of identity. Like you said, if you watch my video on memento or arrival, how you bring those parts together to create the whole, mm-hmm. um, that's where the memorization, the, the unity, the continuity of the mind, possessing all these facts to come up with the, the right. And that's why the world wide web has not necessarily made us smarter. It's given us yeah. more information and facts, but it hasn't given us knowledge and especially hasn't given us wisdom, right? Mm-hmm. And, and, uh, and it's also robbed us of some of that stuff because we don't actually think by watching everything or by, by just being aware of everything, which is great. You can be aware of quite a bit, but you, if you never just sit down and wrestle with an individual idea for very too, for too long, but you're on to the next fact, you're always going on to the next fact, always on to the next story or whatever. If you haven't sat down and just allowed that one fact, that one idea to start to work its way and build a web of meaning throughout that one thing. That's where we really are lacking in our culture in terms of allowing uh, various ideas and see the outgrowing and see how they all uh, work together. What I absolutely despise, and I don't, even, I don't even wanna watch a movie on regular TV now, and it's not just the advertisements, it's when you get to the end of the movie and the credits start rolling and you get the music and you wanna just stop and think for a moment about what you just saw, you know what happens. Immediately the screen gets cut in half, the music's gone, the music's gone <laughs> a thousand miles an hour, and they're blaring at you what's coming next. So we're yeah. never given time to stop and reflect, always on. That's why I love the end of the, uh, of, of the Truman Show, right? Uh-huh. It's all over, it's all that hug, and then what else is on? Click, right? Just immediately, I mean, we've experienced the entire life of a person, and then we're switching the channel within yeah. Just move on. Not not significant. Now, now this that, that was part of that great book, uh, amusing ourselves to death. Mm-hmm. Now everything is trivialized by and now this. <laughs> you know, we're, we're talking about something, and then let's go to the commercial for cereal or something like that. Uh, mm-hmm. And everything is trivialized. Uh, so Neil Postman got it all right. Here's another one who wasn't a believer but saw right to the truth of things. 
uh, mm-hmm. Neil Postman's book. It's still one of the best books ever written. Great book. Great book. I think um, too, Matt, maybe that speaks to your point about, that we were talking about before we spoke with Lou about Christ and limits. So the limit there is actually a virtue. So Christ's human limits are mm-hmm. actually a positive in that, in that life. Does that make sense? Uh, no, it doesn't. Um, so tease that out for me. But as, as a human being and having those limitations, uh, even though he was also God, mm-hmm. um, say, like uh, how we are creatures of memory, mm-hmm. that uh, limitation is a link to communion or something like that. Mm-hmm. Does that make sense? Yeah. So, yeah. Um, if you're all things, you're, you're not any one thing kind of thing. You, yeah. You, you don't so have it any context. Yeah, it preserves the dignity of the Trinity, I suppose, mm-hmm. that um, there's that unity, but the otherness too, and the limit uh, is also uh, part of his identity, because obviously that his limit as the Son is what differentiates, differentiates him from the Father and the Holy Spirit, but also mm-hmm. um, you might see, I don't know, I don't want to be heretical, but you no, might I get it. say that I get it. you're wrestling with something, that's good. Him, him talking about the kenosis, the emptying, of emptying himself mm-hmm. of that. Uh, yeah, because we were talking, Lou, before you came on, we were talking about, uh, uh, you know, talking about uh, Wittgenstein. And I was talking about Wittgenstein and his idea of consciousness and the idea of uh, where consciousness lies. And he seems to have a much more objective view of consciousness, that subjectivity isn't really what matters, it's objectivity. That there's somehow consciousness is outside ourselves rather than inside of ourselves. At least that's how people read him. I'm not quite sure that's what he means, but I was thinking about First John, and in First John we were talking about that uh, the, one of the heretical, the people that left the group, the people that went out from the group, they believed that Jesus was not fleshly, right, and they right. said that that's the spirit of the Antichrist. Basically, these false prophets have gone on the world. But the key of what he talks about is that that idea of Jesus being fleshly, being a man is significant because it shows the type of love that we should give to other people. If you don't believe that Jesus is fleshly, then you're not going to love in a fleshly way. You're not going to love in a tangible, physical, you know, sweat smelling, whatever way that it, it takes to love someone with a, with a handling and a touch and a, and a sight that, that can be seen visibly verified. You're going you're gonna to just believe it and say, well, belief is just enough, rather than saying outside ourselves. Anyway, we were talking about the idea of of this bounded context, this idea that there is something rather than just being all things like, hey, be warm and well fed and you just walk away and you haven't had your physical needs. There hasn't been something tangibly expressed. Logos Uh, made flesh, I think. (laughs) Yeah. I was just saying to my kids last night and Chesterton says something like this. What's really funny about the critics of the church, especially in America, is they say, you Christians you know, you teach us that the body's bad and it's evil and you look down in the flesh. And, and, and another thing I don't like about you Christians is that you persecuted those poor Gnostics. The complete irony of that whole thing. It's like, yeah. oh, that, that's what the Gnostics believe. And, and I don't know if you know this, uh, Matt, but a lot of people say that the real religion of America is uh, dualism. Yeah. Uh, a spirit good, flesh bad. Yeah. Uh, and, uh, and, and you can see that in the fact that Americans are unbelievably embarrassed when we go to Europe and you people refer to the bathroom as the toilet. And it actually embarrasses us because we are embarrassed by the body, whether it's sex or going to the bathroom, mm-hmm. we're embarrassed by the body. When we built in this, this, which is, again, it's Gnostic, it's not Christian at all. Mm-hmm. And yet we've bought into it. And, and you can see it in the idea that 
when we die, we become angels, mm -hmm. right? Because the body's bad, a completely unchristian thing. We, we need N.T. Wright over here to smack us up the side yeah. of the head yeah. Yeah. the resurrection of the body. Um, yeah. and, uh, and that that's the thing is, is that that dualistic idea is that, that, I mean, we could also tease it out a little bit more. Before Descartes, there was, there was, there was Luther, and, and Luther basically said that belief matters more, that basically my private belief about what Scripture says you know, here I stand, I can do no other, right. led to the greatest transformation. You know, it was a shockwave that went throughout Europe into this idea of private belief. Now, I'm, I'm going to say a lot of the people that held private belief, I, you know, had um, really did believe that it needed to be expressed publicly, that basically my belief in Christ would lead to physical actions. I mean, this reading of Paul, which is this idea of if I, if I am saved, I'm going to... Uh, I'm going to do the works of salvation, you know, that, right. but it's not works that save me. It's, it's my belief that saves me, but my right. beliefs will work themselves out in somehow that's, that's working themselves. But it, it seems to be that we have gotten to the point where it's only belief that matters. And again, this is becomes more of a liberal approach is that religious expression is not what we've been guaranteed in the constitution. It's private belief that you can have oh, your beliefs, but you can't express, express your religion publicly because it has no bearing. You can think your thoughts, but you can't act your acts, that there's a difference, there's a dichotomous relationship between those two things, and that's the dualism. So there's a lot of a a ways that dualism is working like itself up. And that's why I like Wittgenstein, because Wittgenstein's saying is like, no, it's one and the same. The body and the mind are a kind of a unit. You can't have belief without behavior, behavior without belief, and the only way we see belief is through behavior, for, through physical expression. Um, and simply to speak a word, like First John says, we let us not love with words, uh, and well, it's not with with words, but with uh, truth, but with, you know, um, a deed and in the truth. So, yeah, your, your, your next title has to be Logos Praxis. We got Logos <laughs> Praxis and Logos Praxis. Yeah, it's, it's, yeah, it's, an, idea, it's an idea that works both ways. It's an idea yeah. that works both ways. So defining ourselves in the difference, defining ourselves by different behavior, by physical expressions um, and uh, identity that is expressed physically. You know, I'm writing a book about the early church now, and, and Julian the Apostate, one of the things he tried to do to, get, to, to, to destroy Christianity is to try to get the rich pagans to start building hospitals and orphanages, and, and th by doing so, take away the, the charity that is being owned by the Christians. But again, there still are no atheist hospitals and atheist orphanages and stuff like that. Even today, you know, they, they may talk about building it, but they don't. Mm -hmm. um, you know, they fritter it away in strange causes that don't really help people. Yeah. Um, yeah. Um, Lou, do you think that the Trinity um, preserves the balance uh, so that we don't slip into that dualism that Matt's talking about uh, versus what you talk about in Atheism on Trial about the kind of monisms like um, Spinoza's pantheism? Yeah. Is, does that? And then I think yeah. back to um, our discussion about persons. So we are persons in communion, whereas the definition of persons that we were talking about earlier on from the secularist perspective seems to be a more egocentric thing and is against children and uh, people outside of you, whereas the, the definition of person in Christianity preserves our individuality and our communion at the one time. Is that, do you see a link there anywhere? And actually, uh, quote Chesterton again, in orthodoxy, he says that, you know, in Islam, you have a radically monotheistic God, the lonely, angry God on the mountain shouting. And this is, this is why it produces this kind of political social structure. Whereas in Christianity, 
God is something more like a, a parliament in session, which is kind of scary because they're always screaming at each other in the UK. But, but he says, you know, democracy comes out of this idea that God is, is, is a unity, a, a dialogue, if you will. You, you know the beautiful Greek word, uh, peri, perichoresis. Dancing yeah. around, right? That, that beautiful. That, that talk, talking about Tarkovsky. What, what, what is it? The, um, the the famous icon painter. Rublev. The icon. Uh, what's his name? Uh, Rublev. So is that? Yeah, Andrei Rublev. Yeah, his famous painting of the Trinity, where they're all sort of looking at each other in a circle. You're actually seeing mm -hmm. perichoretic play back and forth. Uh, and and uh, and you know, in one sense, I agree with Locke that. The reason that we make society, you know, that we make a, a social contract is, is because of scarcity and we need to work together. But I would say that that's only partial. The real reason we form into groups, you know, not just families, but groups and nations is because we are made in the image of a triune God. We're made in the image of a communal God, if you will. Mm -hmm. and so it's not just because of scarcity that we find fellowship in four groups. And so mm -hmm. I think Locke is missing uh, part of, of the, the full ontological reason, whatever, for why we gather together in groups, mm -hmm. including I think too, from, from the, the, to Texas to, to the, the West Coast to the, the center, all the way out to Ireland. <laughs> where are you, are you? Are you in Ireland now? Where are you now? I was for the last few weeks, but I just returned to London and then oh, you're in London now, back. Right. I, uh, cool. we're going back to Ireland um, soon. I'm just thinking there as you're speaking though about Locke. So obviously within the Trinity, it's a voluntary relationship. It's not coerced. Whereas a lot of these new political ideologies are all about coercion. And I think that speaks to your point about Islam too, that Allah seems to be a coercive God that doesn't respect the difference between man and God, whereas it's, that problem is not there in Christianity. Um, but I think that sort of lends itself to these new ideologies um, like critical theory and different different ideologies that whenever they just focus on power everything's about power because the nature of things in their cosmos isn't a voluntary relationships of love it's what is there other than power if that makes sense <laughs> they don't have that definition of they don't have that definition of the human person as a communal creature it's i suppose it speaks again to your point about it's Dar darwinism in action i guess yeah if that makes sense um not yeah the, the idea of or even just the idea of love you know like asking a darwinist well why do you love your child yeah you know and if and you, you just stop there i mean it, it's such a shame you know right you know you know the edict of milan is the one that that uh, brought religious toleration to to to, to uh, the roman empire but the kind of sad thing is, is that once the Christians took over, they outlawed paganism. So it's like, I, we sort of had to wait until the American Bill of Rights to actually have, I mean, if you go back and read the Edict of Milan, it's really about religious toleration. And in, in a way, we lost that yeah. until, I, you could argue, until the Bill of Rights in America were a real sense, right? Because you, know, you, you never see it took about 70 years after that, though. The Edict of Milan was an edict of toleration, wasn't it? It was an edict yeah. of toleration. And then about 70 years later, by the time that, then they basically reversed it. Basically. They reversed it, yeah. And then, and now they, they went after pagans. Uh, yeah, they destroyed paganism. And, and, yeah. uh, I mean, and what can we say, right? Is, isn't it true that we always think that our, our, our pilgrim founding fathers left England so they could get away from religious oppression and go to America. But that's not what happened. They went to Holland first. They went to the Netherlands. And I think the Netherlands was too liberal for them. It was too much religious freedom. So they left again. We never hear that part, you know? Mm -hmm. So there, there's a problem too, okay? 
uh, but um, I don't know. It's it's uh, it, I, you know, but but the uh, but but yes, I, I do think we, we we do need more theology of the Trinity. That's just not out there. Uh, some people will go so far as to say that because we're made in the image of the Trinity, we're actually tripartite. We're not body and soul, but we're body, soul, and spirit. Uh, Watchman Nee talks about that and others. And I think they make a good case that what they mean is that there's our body and there's our spirit. The spirit is the breath of life that God breathed into us, but our soul is a sort of mixture of the emotional, the intellectual, and the volitional, the will. Uh, and that the, the deeper spirit is what the Holy Spirit communes with. And I, and I don't know, like I said, that, uh, but I, I, it, it's interesting to just kind of remind, or if you ever get a chance to read The Mind of the Maker by Dorothy Sayer, uh, mm -hmm. she uses the Trinity to help us understand art, or uses art to help us understand the Trinity. So there is the artist, that the artwork in the mind of the artist, there is the artwork itself, and then there's the artwork as it is perceived and absorbed by the, the, the viewer. And she links that to Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. It's called the mind of the maker. And it's really good, uh, helping us to understand the Trinity in a different way. Mm, marvelous. I think um, as well as theology, uh, what you describe in your book about literature, about thinking like a poet, um, can you tell us a bit about that? What it means to think like a poet and um, how that might change? Or... It's really funny because a lot of people think that poetry means you know, artsy-fartsy, uh, everything is very, very abstract. But no, real poetry is actually more concrete than regular prose, right? Mm -hmm. We're using metaphorical language to get more to the center of meaning. And, you know, the, 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 to me, you know, the, the older people, I mean, in some ways, poetry was considered the purest form of language. It gets you closer to the language of Adam. Right, mm -hmm. that language with which Adam named the animals, right, that we lost in Babel. And, and uh, this idea where signifier and signified are almost the same uh, mm -hmm. uh, uh, in this true language. And that's what happens when we get to poetry, a language where it's, it's almost pure meaning, I guess you would yeah. say. Uh, and and uh, purify the language of the tribe. That's an Eliot uh, phrase from the four quartets um, to get at it. And, and again, it gets closer to meaning, not farther away from it. Mm -hmm. Marvelous. Um, I think does Northrop Frey talk in that way too at a sort of societal level that you you move away from a, a concrete poetic mindset to civilizations that are more abstract and from what I recall it's been a few years since I read him. Can you remember anything from him? No. He says but also another person that says that is Owen Barfield uh, who had a big influence on both Lewis and Tolkien uh, in his book called Saving the Appearances where language and also poetic diction where language loses it language is more complex in the beginning able to contain more meaning mm -hmm. and we get we get more precise but in a negative way where language loses its multivalence the, the fancy word is polysemous language exists on many levels as the old allegorical readers of scripture saw that language has all these different meanings the literal the allegorical and the moral and the anagological all all stacked one on top of another it's kind of what you're, you're doing uh, uh, in, in your uh, film uh, uh, critics sometimes you're, you're you're showing that these yeah. layers of meaning are held in tension mm -hmm. and they mean all of those things at the same time mm -hmm. it's not like one two three four it's all at right. once right uh, and, and i think the greatest films do that and i think film allows itself to be more that kind of a medium uh, mm -hmm. and, and uh, you know, where, where sometimes they purposely set the sound over against 
the the the, the image. Uh, mm -hmm. they, they could play around with that. I mean, uh, Hitchcock made the first sound movie in England. It's called Blackmail. And he's already making an artistic use of sound. Like, mm -hmm. there's, there's a scene where this woman has killed this guy that's trying to rape her. And, and she's at dinner, and her husband's talking, and he, he's asking her to pass the knife. And what Hitchcock does is he purposely blurs the sound of the man so that what the woman is hearing is, oh, knife, knife. So already, <laughs> of course, he got everybody mad. We just invented sound that we can understand and you're mumbling it? What are you doing, you crazy guy? Um, but he's already understanding that we need to make an artistic use of sound and image so that the layering, you know, gives more meaning to it, yeah. right? The, the best example is the, is the joke in, in, um, in a sound and singing in the rain where, where uh, Gene Kelly is telling his story about dignity, but the visuals are showing it's how completely undignified he was. And it's wonderful that the human brain can keep both of those in sync and understand the levels of meaning at once. When our brains, what probably a computer can't do, uh, Matt, you're the expert on AI, uh, whether a computer can do that, hold things in tension the way our mind can. Uh, and so much of our humor is based on that. And uh, that's what I mean. I don't know if a computer really understands humor when it's causing it to hold things contradictory in its mind together. I'm told mm -hmm. the hardest thing to do is to program your stereo on a randomization thing. So it mm -hmm. chooses randomly. It's very hard to teach a computer to be random, right? Because it doesn't want to be. <laughs> wow. um, I was curious what you think of uh, Bob Dylan, actually. Lou. Me and Matt have spoken about it before. <laughs> well, I will say that you know, a, a lot of our, you know, of our pop stars will go through a Christian phase. Even apparently John Lennon went through a Christian phase until Yoko beat it out of him. Uh -huh. uh, but the, uh, but anyway, the, uh, as far as I understand, Bob Dylan made like three different Christian albums and never, uh -huh. you know, I'm not an expert to know, but uh, he's, he's somebody that's, you know, playing with these things. It's, it's amazing. Only in America, that guy can't sing to save his life. Uh, but he's just, <laughs> talking to my son, Johnny Cash, has a, a vocal range of about five notes, and yet he's a famous singer. The guy can't even do a full octave, as far as I can tell. Uh, and and uh, it's fun. American spirit. I don't know. I think um, Bruce Springsteen can't sing either, but he's famous. Uh, <laughs> that's interesting because I think if, maybe this is why actually that Bob Dylan, Johnny Cash, and even Springsteen are three of the more interest in theological figures I and guess poetic figures too yeah yeah the themes of their work um are very uh, at least um under the surface are very christian there's a lot of theology yeah. in it. and dylan even though he made like three explicitly christian yeah. albums his whole ivoire i would argue is yeah. is steeped in christianity and um theology seems very astute actually i think from the evidence that i've seen he is still uh Christian and he's never disavowed his yeah, Christianity or anything like that. And um, Cash too. There's a guy I'm going to speak to in a few weeks. You might know him. He's um, a psychologist. Uh, he does the. He works at the intersection of psychology and theology. He's from um, Abilene uh, University in Texas. Richard Beck. He's kind of. Um, he's done a book about Johnny Cash and the theological themes in Johnny Cash yeah. and how the um, play between dark and light uh, offers people. Uh, a kind of avenue into Christianity in a post-Christian age. So I'm kind of intrigued by that notion. And uh, I mean, first of all, all country music has Christian roots. They, they can't break away from them. You know, what, what did somebody say? It's, it's about partying all Saturday and 
confessing on Sunday and going to church, but it's still within a Christian worldview that they don't, they can't break out of, you know, all, all gospel music, and all, it's all coming out of there and they can't break away from it. And, and uh, yeah, even solo music, it, it seems to yeah. me that solo music is gospel only the love directed towards God is then directed towards a woman. Yeah. <laughs> it's be the main shift, but so it's uh, it's still look at Marvin Gaye, man. Let's get it on. Let, you know, yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, let's get it on, man. Was a spiritual, and it was uh, well, if the spirit like, moves you. Let me groove you. <laughs> love, love God. In America, we now have a bastardized version of this, and they they, they call them the new worships. Yeah, we sort of yeah. bastardized it now. It's going the, yeah. the wrong way, but done rightly. I mean, you know, the, all the mystic use the language of sexuality. They use the language of orgasm. Uh, yeah. If you read Dante to St. John yeah. of the Cross to Teresa of Avila, uh, all, all of it, Julian of Norwich, all that language is there because it's a communion. I mean, first of all, uh, marriage and sexuality is the showing forth of the marriage of Christ and the church. Yeah. Uh, so, you know, it's got a mystical meaning anyway. Yeah. Um, yeah. And, uh, what did Chesterton say? Every man that knocks on a brothel door is looking for God. That's what he said. <laughs> That's exactly what happens at the end of, what is it, part three or part four of Portrait of the Artist as a Young Man? It's exactly uh -huh. what happens where, you know, Stephen Dedalus is knocking in the door and he's looking for God uh -huh. uh, in the wrong way, but truthfully at the same time. Um, do you think, uh, this is something I've been playing with, do you think that one of the dark sides of Christianity, for the most part, it has created um, a kind of dualism that's anti-sexuality. Yeah. Even now, I see um, in some places it's kind of, it's being addressed. But even now, do you still think that there's an anti-sexuality um, component to much of Christianity that then leaves a space for the outside culture to come in and um, pull Christians away through that? Because uh, I think of, say, in the Orthodox Church, marriage is, uh, this doesn't speak to sexuality per se, but it's, it's seen as eternal, as a sacrament, versus in Roman Catholicism, for example, where it's um, more about the, the, what they, well, many Orthodox would say is more about the contract. And then Vegan Grian talks about how this notion of uh, consent in the contract that you see in Catholicism, probably in Protestantism, Protestantism as well is um, takes center stage and kind of puts the sacramental and sexual side to uh, out away from the center. And then in our Catholic and Protestant cultures, sexuality in particular has proved particularly um, like our, the sexual revolution itself. Take, has taken more Christians away than anything else, if that makes sense. And if we did respect the um, sacramental nature of marriage and sexuality more, mm. might that help alleviate, uh, although you, you still have the problem of sin in the fall anyway, but might it help alleviate the, um, the loss that we, we experienced there for many Christians? Or do you have any? Well, what, one of the things that I wrote in an essay is that you know, I, I love the, the movement True Love Waits. I, I can't even imagine anybody doing that in the 70s when I grew up, you know, actually admitting it, boldly wearing it. But I said, you've got to figure out what is your reason for wearing a True Love Waits ring. If you're wearing it because you believe sex is a holy sacramental thing that belongs in marriage, it's a beautiful thing, then wear it. 
but don't be wearing it if you're wearing because you think sex is is dirty and bestial and you don't want some guy touching you. You see what I mean? And, and, it's, and it's not just the girls. You know, a lot of guys are afraid of any kind of physical intimacy and they become more and more like that. It's kind of scary. And I'm told there's a whole culture in, in, in Japan now where they're, they're against sex now. They, they look at their girly magazines or something like that, uh, but, but, but they're not about touching anymore. It's really, really weird. It's, well, like, it's, like, here, a, it's like a germaphobe gone insane, you know? That's here, that's here in the United States, too. Is it real? I, mean, I didn't realize that. Really? The, reduction, the reduction in um, uh, of pregnancies and everything like that, most, most people, most teens are actually not having sex in until their 20s or later 20s yeah. or whatever because because the uh, red availability of watching pornography and things like that oh, okay. has, um, has, you know, the whole, the way that our culture is structured, they, they have, they're not, you know, the texting, they're, they're texting, but they're not actually having sex. They're not touching each other. They're, yeah. they're, they're communicating via some kind of uh, less than intimate way. Um, yeah. So it's, it's bizarre. I think this whole world of, of pornography has led to a, a, a real, like, you know, why do I need sex? Because yeah. it's I, like I, the um, the hyper real replacing the real again, like you were speaking about earlier, where the most people would or many people would prefer the um, the robot AI girlfriend than the real mm -hmm. thing. You get yeah. it's a consumer thing too, I suppose. You yeah. get all of the um, benefits without any responsibility or having yeah. to go out of yourself and commune properly with that other person. Yeah. Well, yeah. it's the voyeurism that you talked about before, Matt, the, the voyeurism that's at the center of, uh, of, of, uh, of Ex Machina. Mm -hmm. And he just ends up alone. I mean, all he really wanted to do was look anyway. He wanted to watch. Yeah, yeah. he didn't want the real. Yeah. He didn't want the real. Some, some the real of the greatest hip-hop movies are about voyeurism, whether it's uh, Vertigo or Psycho mm -hmm. or uh, what's the other one? Uh, oh, uh, uh, <laughs> Rear Window. Uh, yeah. All three of his oh, yeah. movies all made together are all ultimately about voyeurism. And did you see? Did you see the movie that was made about him? What was the movie that uh, they just did about him? Oh, about? the making of Psycho. It was yes. about the making of Psycho, where he himself is a voyeur. That's right. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, that's amazing. By yeah. the way, you mentioned David Fincher. David Fincher is about to come out with a movie called Mank about Herman Mankiewicz writing Citizen Kane. Sounds like oh, a wow. from his other movies. I just saw it on IMDb. Look, it's M A N K Mank, and it's about the writing Citizen Kane. I, I, I like him as I like him as a director. I think he's a phenomenal director. Yeah, he does all sorts of odd things, but yeah, good things. Yeah. He's all over the place. I mean, he made yeah, he uh, is. Uh, yeah, but every single movie he makes is is great in its own way. So yeah, yeah, very good. Uh, I um I have run out of my own uh, preconceived questions. Is there anything else you two would like to uh, speak about in the time being, or? Boy, there's so much to. This is a good time for me to bow out because I, I've got a, a, a people coming to a party right now. Okay. <laughs> it's going to get loud for a second. But the uh, but this is great. Do you know we've been going for three hours? My kids are going to kill me. Oh my gosh, more than three hours. Yeah. Uh, this is awesome. I'll have to do it again one of these days. And uh, yeah. keep it up. You know, you guys are the, the, the next wave over there. Uh, and, and, and keep it up. And, and uh, I, I do think, like I said, it, it, this is what they're looking for. They're looking for stories. They're looking for magic they're looking for an exploration of self i mean i think that's uh, i think that's the crossover way to do it and mm -hmm. then you know what you're doing matt we don't necessarily have to make our own films mm -hmm. the kind of stuff right. you're doing is a kind of film in itself mm -hmm. it's, it's a kind, you know it's a meta narrative in itself uh yeah. and, and uh you know people i think are responding to it 
I think that they, so, we're speaking the language that they're speaking. If you go to the things yeah. and speak their, talk their language, because if you're talking about some, yeah, you, you can't communicate with someone unless you can speak their language. And to yeah. talk their language, they, they, they totally, you can commune with someone that way. So. And that's what they did. That's how the, the, the gospel spread to the pagans. They learned, they, they learned to use words like logos and theos. They yeah. didn't pretend that Yahweh was Zeus. They didn't go that far. Yeah. But they built a bridge. They spoke their language. They, they, you know, they, they gave Christmas a date that was linked to a pagan festival, which yeah. a lot of people think is watered down doctrine, but I think is a greater form of cultural evangelism, of reaching yeah. out, building a bridge. And, and mm -hmm. you know, we need to do that. Uh, you know, hold in there. And, uh, you know, I guess we need to keep our day jobs, too. But keep, keep doing that as well, you know. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Great stuff. It's been a well, pleasure to talk to you both. Out here. You guys want to continue? Uh, but thanks. And we'll definitely do this again. Yes, thank you. Good work. It's <laughs> nice talking with you. Good talk to you.